Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We have found Kaylee Lines coming off the weekend here, adding one voice at a time here on the fastest show in politics. Good to see you, Kaylee. It's going to be actually a pretty busy week here. You've got hearings you're uh, going to. The, yeah. the House is back today. The Senate will be back in a couple of days with a little bit of a mad dash to the August recess. And, of course, we've got a president who's, well, he's acting presidential in a very important trip abroad. Yeah, a three-leg trip abroad, of mm-hmm. course, started in the U.K., where he met with His Majesty King Charles, as well as the U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. And then it is over to Lithuania for yeah. the NATO summit, where there are very several pressing questions uh, that President Biden and the allies of NATO are going to have to deal with, mm-hmm. not least of all the potential membership of Ukraine, and then, of course, Sweden, who also would like to be a member, but Turkey has thrown a little wrench in that. And then yeah, that's not all. Right. He goes to Helsinki after that. So a busy day uh, at the executive level. But as you say, at the time. legislative le- level as well, there's, what, 12 days that everybody's in session right. before August recess? I'm sure a lot will get done Yeah, as we look forward to the appropriations debate in the fall. He just arrived, by the way, in Lithuania. <laughs> Uh, for the two-day summit, to your point, he met with the Prime Minister and King Charles on the way, although that was described as kind of a makeup, not probably going to do uh, a lot to impact the summit here. Uh, Mick Mulvaney is with us in studio, I'm glad to say, as the NATO summit uh, gets started and lawmakers return to town. It's nice to see you in the nation's capital. It's nice to be in the nation's capital. I'm sure you're talking to... Because I don't have to live here. I can come in right. and I go home. Isn't that true? You parachute in Tell people how they can make their lives better on Capitol Hill. We used to call that seagull management in my business days. Do you know, do you know what that means? No, what is that? Seagull, you, you fly in, you crap all over everything, and then you leave. <laughs> oh, that's seagull management. So that's how you're treating Kevin McCarthy's House of no, Representatives. No, no, no. It's okay. just one of my favorite sayings. Just the anyway. city. So, no. Well, look, they but they want time with you because they want to figure out how to navigate the next couple of months here, right? We're going to talk about geopolitics But I am deeply curious about a a, a House Republican conference that could be headed for a government shutdown in the next couple of months. Sure. I think the chances of a government shutdown are probably close to 100 percent. They almost have to be Um, because, you know, Kevin sort of has to show, you know, the right wing of the party that he still, you know, is in there fighting. Some of them have accused him of giving up on the debt ceiling. I think that's woefully misled. But, I mean, again, no one listens to me much. Um, So you're going to have to fight. Plus, a, a shutdown is not that big a deal. Now, it's a bigger deal when the Democrats are in office because they can make it hurt a lot more. The last time we had a government shutdown, I ran it. The Office of Management Budget actually runs the shutdown. Hmm. And the shutdown only stops about 15 percent of the government. And if you want to, you know, do things like keep the parks open, you can do that at the Office of Management Budget, at least for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you want to, uh, so if you want to lower the temperature, you can. If you want to raise it, you can. And my guess is that the Biden administration is going to want to raise the temperature just a little bit in the government shutdown. 
Okay, but when we talk about temperatures being high, certainly the temperature and the heat on Speaker McCarthy himself to keep everyone in line uh, has pretty much remained high throughout his entire relatively short tenure at this point. So if we talk about, okay, they're going to shut down the government, it becomes a question of how hard his job may be in ultimately getting appropriations bills passed to end the government shutdown eventually. Right. But keep in mind, there's a new wrinkle here because of the debt ceiling deal, mm-hmm. right, which I think is fascinating, which and is automatic. the automatic cuts. Yeah. So which makes me think, all right, it makes it, you know, maybe less likely that there's a shutdown now uh, and more likely that there's an omnibus at the end of December. It, anyway, the point mm-hmm. being is that everything is different now because of that. The, the, the long and the short of this, of this is if they don't pass spending bills, it's yeah. unclear in my mind as to whether or not that has to be 12 separate or if an omnibus or a minibus counts because those are all appropriations bills. Okay. Uh, if they have to pass a CR, a continuing resolution, there's an automatic across-the-board 1% cut, which doesn't sound like much. But keep in mind, we used to have bills on the uh, amendments on the floor every single year to cut spending by 1%, and they failed every <laughs> single time. So that is a motivator. I've, we've yes. had lawmakers on Kaylee who say, yeah, but you know what? Big deal if they eat a 1%. At right. least we don't no, have too much room. No, no, but that's no. that's going to light a fire. Now, Marsha Blackburn, who's now a senator from Tennessee, used to that was her thing. That was what she was famous for. Huh. Every single year on every single appropriation bill, 1% across the board, <laughs> and every single Democrat would vote against it, mm-hmm. and a, rep- a majority of Republicans would vote against it as well. It goes back to my conversation about you can't blame just one party for spending. When we talk about the things that the Republicans will vote for and, frankly, how they will, how together they will vote, yeah. I know you have feelings about the current House Freedom Caucus, mm-hmm. which may have looked very different when you uh, first started it, and people getting kicked out of it. Apparently, uh, apparently, maybe. What is your take on the Marjorie Taylor Greene? We can't tell. So and I can't tell. One of the things I'm going to have conversations I'm going to have this week was that I, I've actually been texting with some members of the HFC to find out exactly what happened because it sounds like. Um, they didn't follow the rules, or at least the rules that they used to exist. And the rules that used to exist, I'm a little familiar with because I wrote them. Right. <laughs> um, and the rule was that if you wanted to kick out a member, you had to have a specially um, noted, uh, notified meeting for that purpose. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, on Thursday at 530, we will meet for the purpose of expelling Marjorie Taylor Greene. Okay. That at that meeting, you had to have 80% vote of the caucus. Okay, mm-hmm. not eighty percent of the folks that show up, but eighty percent of the votes of the caucus. Mm-hmm. There is no chance in my mind that they actually had <laughs> the discipline to, to to notify the meeting, mm-hmm. or that they would get that type of vote. Keep in mind, if you get thrown out of the caucus for just being, you know, on Kevin McCarthy's side on a couple of issues right, right now, like yeah. you know, it's one of the things they, they charge uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene with, um, then Jim Jordan's next. Because huh. mm. Jim Jordan has been as, as a staunch defender of Kevin McCarthy as uh, as anybody. So it'd be curious to see um, what actually happened and then what what does happen next. So if we see Jim Jordan arguing with Lauren Boebert on the House floor, <laughs> we know we should call Mick to find out what happened. Well, I do know that Jim uh, wouldn't use the same language because he's a gentleman. That's yeah, true. So that's uh, right. Well, uh, we talked to Representative Andy Harris about this, and it was a fascinating conversation that, that kind of led – to nothing. And I believe that the vote was taken by the entire, that the, the, there was a vote taken by the entire group, but again, we, we pass it on to the entire group, and, and I'm pretty sure the vote was taken. But so she's out. The entire group. Uh, as far as I know, that's, that, that, that's the way it is. And then he went on to confuse things even more. I could keep playing this tape, but why is it so hard for everyone to say what 
happened? Because I'm not sure they know what happened. Uh, and keep in mind, I mean, face it, and again, I'm not here to defend Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm not here to yeah. attack Marjorie Taylor Greene. But she does love the attention. There's no question about it. Sure. And so you never— And they're running around trying to find her, we understand. This but, needs to be notified in person. And we never talked—and I say we now. The Freedom Caucus never talked about who was in the membership anyway. So hmm. really, if you say, look, we're having a vote to kick somebody out— He's sort of admitting that that person was in what you're not supposed to do in the first place. Really? So it gets oh, it's all it's just. But people wow. self-identify as they members do. of the Freedom sure. Caucus. Yeah. But there's no way to prove that false or true. Okay. <laughs> Is so, Chip Roy the next chair, Kaylee? Mm-hmm. That seems like it's more of a question for Mick. I, that would make sense. It, it, it would. I mean, and Chip's a very talented guy, so it would, that wouldn't bother me at all. I was a big fan of, of having a president or a chairman for a much longer period of time. I thought yeah. Jim Jordan did a great job of keeping the disparate groups. Keep in mind, that, you know, it's not a monolithic group, but Jim did a great job of keeping everybody together. I think Meadows... Meadows found out something uh, interesting, which is that you could you could instead of uh, doing what we I wanted us to do, which is yeah. figure out a way to participate in the debate as as a group and, and sort of you know try and move the needle to the right a little bit. Mm-hmm. Meadows found out you could get famous uh, and then also make a lot of money. My understanding is that Mark's group has just bought like five or six buildings on Independence Avenue in Washington mm. D.C. Oh yeah, no, this is a great way to get famous, and you know Amazing. not a, the, 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 there's a lot of people in the in the in the Freedom Caucus now that you would never have heard of but for the yeah, freedom caucus yeah. so um i don't know if it's uh if it has anything to do with what we started just uh, five or six years ago but it is what it is washington is a is a, is a dynamic place and uh, hmm. we'll just see what uh, see what they come up with next all right it is indeed and that's kind of what's going on in capitol hill but when we think broadly about the political electoral landscape in 2024 you have a new piece out in the hill today which is titled the evidence mounts that democrats are souring on Biden. What evidence of that are you seeing? Um, there was a piece in The Atlantic, um, which ordinarily, uh, look, if, if, if you turn on the internet, if you go to the internet, I actually turn on the, if you go to the internet and there's an article saying, Joe Biden is too old to run, he's got, he's got dementia, he's terrible, and it's in Breitbart, it doesn't really, what, so who cares? That's what you expect from Breitbart. Mm-hmm. Sort of like going to watch uh, Vanity Fair and see something awful about Donald Trump. That's what they do, right? Rolling Stone. They just You know what you get when you go to these outlets. If you want to be entertained on the left or the right, those entertainment outlets exist. But when The Atlantic, um, which is a, a strong left-leaning organization, allows a piece to be run by, and it's written by a, uh, a former Bush appointee, saying it's time to think about replacing Joe Biden, that is, that's a watershed to me. That's sort of an earthquake hmm. in that what that means is that the conversations that we all know are taking place privately that you, in Washington, D.C., around Washington, D.C., in the grassroots back home is now filtering up. When The Atlantic runs a piece that says maybe it's time to think about replacing Joe Biden, it's sort of like Breitbart allowing Joe Scarborough to go on, you know, to give him a thousand words and say that Donald Trump should think about dropping out of the race. If Breitbart were to allow Scarborough to run that in their, mm. on their format, on, on, in their outlet, that would be a giant red flag to the right. And I think the piece that The Atlantic ran over the weekend about Joe Biden is the same for the left. This brings me your once makes me want to go to the no labels conversation. But I want to just ask you, based on the way you answered that, if the same thing is happening in a way to Ron DeSantis. Because every time he goes yeah. on Fox now, uh, he's got to answer for what are not Donald Trump's approval ratings. Listen to this back and forth with Maria Bartiromo from over the weekend. What happened? <laughs> oh, Maria, these are narratives. The media does not want me to be the nominee. I think that's very, very clear. Why? Because they know I'll beat Biden. 
But even more importantly, they know I will actually deliver on all these things. What does it mean when the candidate starts to blame the media? Oh, no, he's actually right about that. Yeah. that. That's fine. But the fact that that the, if you go allow that interview to go on more uh, a little bit longer, he's having to explain to the right why his candidacy is not doing as well as some thought that it would, as others thought that it had hoped. He just had a pretty decent fundraising. More than $20 million. Yeah. yeah, it's a great number. There's no question. But it's not translating yet in terms of polling data. Now, keep in mind, it's polling data. Oftentimes, or more often than not, nationwide, which you can take and throw in a trash can. You, what you're looking at now is Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. Um, so, but yeah, he's having to ask tough questions. I think it's because you're hearing the same sort of rumble within the right of, wow, we thought DeSantis would be further along than he is right now. Is he really the guy? And the answer could still be yes, mm -hmm. but that discussion is taking place. Mm -hmm. And is the only real beneficiary of that? Donald Trump? Or does that leave room for one of these other candidates that are, if we're talking about polling, still languishing in single digits to kind of gain some traction? Both. I, I don't think people right now are deciding between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. They're deciding between Ron, Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott and Nikki Haley and uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, although mm. the last part is not real. Um, so <laughs> which what, what I look at from some from the outside who doesn't have a dog in the fight, I'm not endorsing anybody, I'm simply looking at it as an observer. What do I look at? Donald, lines, Donald Trump's top line numbers, and they're still slightly trending up. Mm. And, and that's the one thing to sort of pay attention to. They're, they're, the the, uh, the the criminal charges have not hurt him. Uh, in fact, they've not hurt his 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 money raising. His number was with thirty five million dollars in the second quarter. Right. I haven't seen yet, importantly, what the net number of that is. But if the if the campaign sort of leak is accurate, he raised thirty five million dollars with an average donation of thirty four dollars. That's unheard of in our business. We hear all these stories about big money leaving Donald Trump. Yeah, it right. looks like mm -hmm. it's true, but he's growing his base with the, with the, with grassroots donors. So that's that's it. Doesn't answer your question, um, but it's not like it's Ron DeSantis versus Donald Trump right now. It's sort of it's <laughs> as it was always going to be: yeah. Donald Trump against Donald Trump. Yeah. Mm. And it sounds like Donald Trump is is winning in that battle right now, as opposed to losing. Thirty four dollars and twenty cents, I believe, Kaylee. Yeah. We talked about that last week, which is why a lot of folks are wondering. Who's going to be on the debate stage in August? It might not be a lot of people, especially if Donald Trump doesn't attend. Do you ever see him order a blizzard? No, uh, listen, but I, I, you know, I had when I he knows I, what a blizzard I, is. I laughed when I saw that, and I don't know that he does. Okay? I really don't. But I can tell you that. Uh, listen, we all, you know, you're president of the United States. There's certain certain perks to being in office. And I remember doing a rally in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and we did. We, it was a pretty good rally. We had a good time. We had a good day. Something else had happened that day. I can't remember what it was. But the team was in a good mood, so I decided to send somebody out for a hundred McDonald's hamburgers that we had on the flight on the way home. What about so, McFlurries? So, um, no. <laughs> no, we, we, it was not. A, he, he, listen, when I say he wasn't a dessert guy, that's not accurate because the man loves his dessert. <laughs> but I never heard him say, "Mick, Mick, Mick, where's where's the ice cream?" You right. Know, that uh, was never. That what was, never was the reception when a hundred hamburgers came on board? <laughs> yeah, listen, I mean, you, this you, is a standing ovation, right? Yeah, that's right. You you give a plane full of uh, of, of uh, hungry politicos who've had a really good day, both yeah. politically and policy wise. I think we'd passed a piece of legislature or something like that. It was a a, a, a celebratory environment. I'll never forget that night. I don't know what team it was, but the the Burger King, the McDonald's, the Chick-fil-A. I mean, he... The Clemson Tigers. You remember that, day. I was there for that. <laughs> you were there This is making me really crave, like, French fries. Yes! We, we cleaned out every single fast food place oh within my God. five miles. <laughs> I want that yeah. whole story next time. <laughs> Mick, great to see you. Thanks, in person in studio with us, Mick Mulvaney. I'm Joe Matthew with Kaylee Lines. This is Bloomberg. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. 
It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Coming off another weekend on the campaign trail that saw Donald Trump making his big campaign debut in Nevada, speaking in Vegas about waterfront property and Ron DeSantis taking some heat on Fox. It's finally coming around here. It's the second time now in two days he was on Fox Business with Varney being asked about what's up with the poll numbers. On Sunday, it was Maria Bartiromo. What happened, she asked. Failure to launch Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' campaign <laughs> to topple Donald Trump has stalled. We are way behind, <laughs> says a top DeSantis PAC official, sounding the alarm. What happened? <laughs> Oh, Maria, these are narratives. The media does not want me to be the nominee. I think that's very, very clear. Why? Because they know I'll beat Biden. But even more importantly, they know I will actually deliver on all these things. Did it. Ron DeSantis on Fox Business with the chuckle there as we reassemble our panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors. New polling data out. This is from Florida Atlantic University. Uh, Rick and Jeannie, this may not be one that you follow uh, very closely, as I read always uh, the methodology here. This is about 900 and some, uh, quote unquote, adults, not even registered voters, certainly not likely primary voters. And they say that the survey is intended to represent the voting population in Florida. Okay, Donald Trump, 50. DeSantis, 30. Falls off a cliff there. The next name is... Vivek Ramaswamy with four, and then it gets, you know, you're down to one with by the time you get to Nikki Haley. Uh, This may not be a poll that tells us a lot here, Rick, but when you're in your home state of Florida, should this not look better for Ron DeSantis? Well, as you point out, and I, I appreciate your diligence with uh, pointing out the, you know, the, 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 the filter that was used for this poll, which doesn't mm-hmm. even, it's not even limited to Republican primary voters, right? right? So Democrats, independents, vegetarians, and Still the Green Party are all in there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think you want to get too far ahead. Uh, look, obviously, um, uh, all the attention on Ron DeSantis and the fact that he hasn't really broken out uh, from uh, his earlier uh, launch of the campaign and picked up any polling actually betrays the fact that he's actually gone backwards. And this mm-hmm. could be used as a metaphor for that. But the problem is he's got to show progress, not just with the ability to raise money, but the actual ability to get voters 
who want to support him uh, to uh, to show up in some of these surveys, especially yes, right. these state surveys. So yeah, he's trapped in a bit of a conundrum, and 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 you you can only attribute that to his campaign style and the lack of strategy by his campaign. Interesting to hear the tough questions start emerging on Fox here, Jeannie. The laugh, by the way, the chuckle to what happened. <laughs> How's he doing uh, in, in these interviews? You, you have to be able to turn tough questions into a benefit. Is he capable of that? We haven't seen it yet. A bit of a nervous laugh from DeSantis, and rightly so. That poll you're talking about, let's not forget, was conducted before he issued this bizarre, perplexing, I don't know what word to call it, ad, this LGBTQ ad. And and this one, if people haven't seen it, it is worth watching, and I don't try to, you know, hawk his stuff normally, but he's attacking Donald Trump for defending gay rights. But then he has this super weird sort of montage of people flexing their muscles, men, Brad Pitt. And, you know, Pete Buttigieg was right when he said, it's strange to try to prove your manhood by putting together a video with splices of images of you between oiled up bodybuilders. I mean, the whole thing was so weird. And we wonder why his poll numbers are going down and why he's nervous when Maria Bartoloma asks him, what the heck is going on? Even his own super PAC operative, Steve Cortez, said, and I think she quoted this in the interview, we are way behind. We need to do better. So he does need to do better. And if we're looking at an August 23rd debate, mm-hmm. there's time is, you know, a little bit short at this point. So he's going to have to pick it up. And he hasn't shown the capacity to do that since he launched. At the same time, though, Rick, you know, somebody asked me over the weekend, like, oh, when's he going to drop out? When's Rhonda saying like, he, he raised 20 million dollars? In the last quarter, you've got people in single digits. Why is Ron DeSantis always in the crosshairs? Well, because I think there was so much expectation built up uh, from his overwhelming win for reelection and then subsequently, you know, teasing out the potential campaign uh, and talking about really just overwhelming the uh, the, the field. Uh, uh, it was kind of an expectation they themselves created. And you always have this temptation before you actually launch your campaign of saying, well, I want to get out there with all this wind at my back. And, but you got to keep up with the wind, right? You have to meet the expectations and, and he can only lay it on himself. Although I would say uh, Donald Trump has done a very good job of keeping him pinned down. I mean, you know, if there's, if there's a political credit you have to give to Donald Trump, it's that his campaign recognized the threat of DeSantis early, long before DeSantis became a candidate, they started pounding away at him with, with Republican audiences and, and defined him in a way that he's not only just have to go out and introduce himself, but overcome the damage that's been done by almost $15 million worth of advertising before he even launched his campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'll tell you, it's, it's going to be interesting to watch that debate stage, as uh, Rick just pointed out here Jeannie, I, I don't get how they can have a debate in August, considering the criteria and the fact that it looks like Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump aren't showing up. Yeah, I, I don't know who is going to be on that stage at this point, who can make it. The two people who we, you know, pretty certain have already made it or can make it are DeSantis and Trump, and they're not really inclined to go. So who knows who's going to be on that debate stage at this point? It's a bizarre thing. I don't know if the Republican Party ends up changing um, the requirements to get onto the debate stage. If I was Trump, I wouldn't go. I don't think I'd go if I was DeSantis at this point. Although, you know, gosh, I hope they do go because it would be fun. But, you know, the Republican Party has a real 
real problem on its hands because this race has not moved that much. I mean, Trump has had a commanding lead the entire time, even though DeSantis raised a lot of money, a huge amount. Trump raised more, arguably, and they're just sort of sitting back. He's talking about LGBTQ rights. Take on Trump. He's way ahead of you. The entire field is like waiting for Godot. Who's going to come and save us from Trump? And nobody's coming. And Trump is marching forward. So why not cancel the debate? I've got 30 seconds, Rick. Why not cancel the debate? Who would even remember? Right now, DeSantis, Haley, Scott, and Ramaswamy's, they're qualified for the debate based mm-hmm. on the criteria. So they'll have a debate with them. And if Trump doesn't Jeez. show up, then, it, you know, you're missing Trump. If Trump. But I wouldn't be surprised if Trump doesn't change his mind at the last minute. I mean, he's he's the he's the magician. <laughs> You've predicted these things before. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, uh, we're going to go get a blizzard together next. Enough tweets about blizzards over the weekend. Donald Trump surely knows what one is now. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is... Is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Anyone want a blizzard? Anybody wants a blizzard? Blizzard. What the hell is a blizzard? What do you mean? Fire up the blender. It's time to get a blizzard. You know, at Dairy Queen where Donald Trump stopped in over the weekend at Dairy Queen in Iowa, only to proclaim, or I guess ask loudly, what the hell's a blizzard? It went viral on Twitter, only to be answered uh, by a video of Joe Biden during the campaign. This wasn't from the weekend. When he was buying blizzards for the folks at a Dairy Queen. Want a blizzard? Yeah, I guess it was an Oreo blizzard. He even holds it upside down to show it doesn't spill. And there are questions about campaign style here and what really matters on the trail. Final thoughts from Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. Rick, you've been in this world before where you've got a candidate, see, at the Iowa State Fair, and they have to eat a certain fried food to make everybody happy. Do you show up at Dairy Queen and say, what the hell's a blizzard to relate with people? Well, I'm sure it was tongue-in-cheek because here's a guy who dines out on Happy Meals most of the time. So <laughs> loves I think he knew what a blizzard was, had a few himself, and, and used it as a device just to like look like he was you know, trying to connect with the locals. Right. I guess that's fair. Of course, Joe Biden is an ice cream expert, Jeannie. He must know a lot about a blizzard. He does. To your point, they're gravity defying. He turns it upside down. The thing doesn't fall. It's a great video. And to Rick's point, it was in East Palestine when Donald Trump said he knows the McDonald's menu better than the people (laughs) serving it. Apparently not at Dairy Queen. But I do have to say it is quite relatable because I myself, I'm embarrassed to tell you, Joe Matthew, have never had a blizzard in my life. Wow. And I'm not a big ice cream person. I didn't know what they were. I'm embarrassed to say I love Dairy Queen. My kids loved it. I never tried it. So I'm for the first time with Donald Trump I didn't know I think you might be closer to the working man than Jeannie on this one Rick Davis yeah I'm a Dairy Queen fan I mean I'm even the ones who eat the hot dogs and hamburgers at Dairy Queen and nothing can chase those down like a good blizzard I just knew it something told me if he's a crispy guy he's probably a Dairy Queen he's a DQ guy I'm your eyes remain me when I'm passing by Rick and Jeannie our signature panel I feel better about the fact that it's Monday now that we've had some time thanks as ever for the insights with our signature panel I'm Joe Matthew in Washington hold on a second 
Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.